Father, before you, we bow and recognize once again that you are supreme. And we pray that we might find in your word your mind and your heart and lovingly follow. Give us wisdom, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One summer evening, I was reading a book when a flying insect started bothering me. Buzzing around my face, breaking my concentration. Indeed, literally, I was being bugged. <laughs> Bug landed on my book, and uh, I made a fist. I can't remember if I tried to get some Kleenex or something, but I do remember in trying to get the bug off, I smashed it. His remains linger and stain the pages <laughs> upon which he died. That book happened to be a Bible, and I have the bug Bible with me this morning. <laughs> if you want to come up and see afterwards. Uh, the bug was flattened on Ephesians chapter 5 that says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water of the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or blemish. My actions were the opposite of Christ. Instead of being motivated by love, I was motivated by irritation. Instead of removing stains, I created a permanent one. And sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we find ourselves doing just that. The exact opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. And this is so true when we come to Ephesians chapter five. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter five. We're looking at this critical passage that talks about how wives and husbands are to relate to one another in the wonderful union of marriage. And the message of God, wives relating to their husbands, is connected with this key word, submit. And the relationship of husbands to their wives is demonstrated by the key word of love. But these two words create a ton of confusion. In some sense, they are incendiary words, explosive terms, and to mention them is to create a hostile situation. So, because of that, I'm somewhat fearful to preach on this topic. <laughs> I'm concerned about the reaction. Not so much a negative reaction from women, but uh, overreaction from men who misunderstand what is being stated in this passage and are quick to point out the responsibility of their wife instead of totally understanding the great responsibility that God has given to us. Now what we have to understand when we come to this passage is the section that precedes it. This is true in all of your Bible study. Labor hard to understand the context in which any statement of Scripture is made. To take a portion of Scripture out of its context is deceitful 
And then you can use that portion of scripture to say almost anything you want to say. The cults use the Bible all the time out of context. Politicians use the Bible all the time out of context. Preachers use the Bible all the time out of context. We need to understand the setting in which every statement is given. Now, what is the context then of Ephesians 5? Let me remind you the last time we were in this text, we were emphasizing verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And when you are under the Spirit's control, four things are going to take place. You will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that is, relating to one another spiritually, probably in a worship context, as we sing songs like, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus,' and we're encouraging one another to do that. Secondly, we are to sing and make music in our hearts, or with our hearts, to the Lord. That is, sincerity, a joyful melody within. Thirdly, we are to be giving thanks to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ for every circumstance in which we find ourselves. That's what spirit-filled people do. And fourthly, we are to be submitting to one another in the fear of God or reverence for Christ. Now, I want you to know that verse 21 is a general principle. And that is the general principle that really is related to two sections. It is connected with the previous section, as we just stated. It is one of the four marks of a spirit-filled life. But secondly, verse 21 takes us by the hand into a new section, like a transition or a bridge. In fact, some translations have verse 21 as a separate paragraph by itself to go with what went before and to lead us in to what will follow. And I think it is vital for us to understand this key principle in verse 21 that we will call mutual submission. In other words, you cannot understand anything about the relationships that follow, both in the remaining part of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, unless you understand this concept of mutual submission. It's based on this equality that we have in Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. You don't need to turn there, but you'll be reminded that that verse says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor nor female. Now that doesn't mean that you eliminate those distinctions. It means that in Christ there is equality of worth, that we are all one in Christ and there is no inferior or superior position. We are leveled together at the foot of the cross as sinners. And we need to understand that. That's part of this mutual submission. Secondly, according to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, there is equality with a difference. 
equal dignity as created beings in the presence of God, and yet there is this masculinity and femininity created by God with profound distinctions. Now, if you were to turn to Genesis, let me just read it to you. You don't need to turn there, but in chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. The word man is mankind, human beings. Let us make them in our image. But in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right away, we are introduced to this concept of equality that includes diversity. And that is very important. Gloria Steinem, the leader of the modern feminist movement, once famously said, a feminist is anyone who recognizes the equality and full humanity of women and men, period. I agree. That's a great statement. And from that statement, God could be called a feminist. I just wish she would have stopped talking (laughs) after she said that. Because that's exactly what Genesis says. The full equality of men and women is a God thing created by God. So there is equality with this difference and this diversity. One of the individuals I've enjoyed studying these past two weeks is Elizabeth Elliot, who has now gone to be with the Lord She is the wife, was the wife of the famous missionary Jim Elliott, who died back in 1956. She wrote in the middle 70s a book entitled, Let Me Be a Woman. And it basically was a a bunch of letters writing to her daughter, who was on the verge of marriage, and trying to give a biblical perspective of womanhood in light of the opinions and uh, the positions of the day. This is way back in the middle 70s, and it has changed since then. But she said some interesting things. Let me quote. Most of those who try to find answers to these questions regarding marriage and women's roles in the world start at the wrong place. They start with themselves. They ask, who am I? How do I really feel? And they assume that if enough people express their personal opinions on this subject, we will all somehow arrive at the truth of the matter. She said, but the real question is not who am I, but whose am I? Who do I belong to? Who who made me? She said, to understand the meaning of womanhood, you have to start with God. It is no accident that he made male and female. It's not a trivial thing. It's a God-given thing. It is the modality under which we live our lives. It is what you and I are called to be, she says to her daughter, called to be by the God who is in charge. It is our destiny planned by an all-wise and loving Lord. And you cannot prosper unless you use a thing as it was designed for, whether you're talking about a safety pin or a sailboat. To me, it is a wonderful thing to be a woman under God, she said, to know, first of all, that we were made in his own image, and then secondly, that we were made for something. So instead of 
backtracking and making excuses, we need to delight in this fact that this is God-given, a divine purpose from an all-wise God that loves you more than you love yourself. And when you live as the designer so intended, that's when life becomes exciting and truly fulfilling. The scripture tells us, as we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, that we have equality in Christ in the sense of worth, equality with Christ with a difference, male and female, and then thirdly, equality, and yet we are to treat others as better than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Well, we could stop there and preach several sermons, couldn't we? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. How, how many things do you do every day that is motivated by a desire to please yourself, to promote yourself, and disregard the loved ones around you? Paul says to a church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. It doesn't mean that they are better because we have this sense of mutual worth in Christ, but we are to treat others as more important than ourselves. And that is the general principle of mutual submission. And the entire teaching which is to follow rides on this vital perception that it is in the context of mutual submission. Now we dive in to what Paul starts with in verse 22. Wives, he says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head, the kafel of the wife, as Christ is the kafel of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. By the way, it's rather interesting that there is no verb in verse 22. The word submit doesn't even show up. The verb is basically received from verse 21. So as a part of mutual submission, there is a unique relationship God ordained and God created in the midst of the marriage union. So the responsibility of the wife to the husband is centered on this word submit. Now here is a concept that is out of fashion today. I don't know that it was ever totally in fashion, but it is totally out of fashion, completely at odds with a populist view of contemporary society. And few issues will arouse anger and protest more quickly than talking about this particular idea. The concept is deeply resented, strongly resisted, and as I said before, these words have explosive qualities to them, emotive energy, and they are often totally misunderstood. So, maybe the best way to start is to talk about what this word does not mean. Sometimes that's helpful, isn't it? to see what a word doesn't mean before you actually understand what a word does mean. So this word submit does not mean that husbands have unlimited authority. 
And this is why I'm fearful to preach on this text, because this is the way the husbands read it. Submit to me in everything. I am king. You are property. And I will treat you as I so design. That's ridiculous. And that's not what it means as, at all. In light of mutual submission from verse 21, it cannot mean that. Secondly, it does not mean that uh, the wife has to uh, give unconditional obedience in every situation. So whatever the submitting is, it has to be in the context of obedience to Christ. And remember in the Old Testament when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to obey King Nebuchadnezzar? By the way, there are verses in the Bible that tell us to submit to the king. But they didn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon because what he required was clearly against the word of God. Bow before me and worship my image. And they said, we won't do it. And our God will deliver us from the fire. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Or think of the apostles in the New Testament when they were charged by the Sanhedrin, no longer will you teach in this name of Jesus. We're going to beat you up a little bit, rough you up, and we want you, we want you to know you're no longer to teach in that name. And the apostles said, should we obey God or you? We'll obey God. And they kept teaching. So the word everything in verse 24 cannot be everything without qualification context helps us it does not mean that it is submission from an inferior being to a superior being by the word way the word obey is not even used authority is not stated We'll talk a little bit about what headship means, but those words obey are not used, but it is used when it's talking about children to parents or slaves to masters. This is a totally different relationship. And nothing implies in these verses that exploitation or oppression or humiliation is approved. In fact, Christians should lead the charge for social change. And any form of human oppression is to be attacked. We should welcome all attempts to eradicate any form of exploitation. And that's why the feminist movement is saying some right things. Because women have not been treated with equality. And Christians should lead the charge. But we often fold ourselves into some misunderstanding and some old traditional view of a text that was not properly exegeted in its context. So I want you to know that there is nothing in here. Jesus would never approve of oppression. If the husbands misuse their God-given authority by commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands and it goes either way, then it is no longer the duty of the wife to conscientiously submit, but to steadfastly resist. Submission is up to the point where obedience to human authority 
would somehow involve disobedience to divine authority, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, what, what should we say about this word submit? What does it mean then? Well, understand that it is the equality of worth. There is recognizing this equality of worth that is not any, in any way erased. There is an equal dignity as created beings in the image of God. Secondly, there is diversity of roles. And when I say diversity of roles, I am not talking about men should win the bread and wives should work at home. If that role works fine in your marriage, fine. But that not, is not what the roles of Scripture are talking about. So some of the traditional roles that we think are biblical roles are not necessarily biblical roles. God-given functions, wives giving birth to children. Obviously, there's a huge difference in our physiology. And there also, I think, is some difference in the psychology of our hearts, the way masculinity and femininity is framed. But there is no sense in which the diversity of roles gives a list of what women can't do. I don't know if you watched the funeral yesterday of Barbara Bush, but I caught it, and I was going to catch a few minutes of it, ended up watching the whole hour and 20 minutes. It was pretty fascinating. I thought the thing that was most moving is when the granddaughters of Barbara Bush read from Proverbs 31. And what is Proverbs 31? That's the portion of scripture all women hate to hear read. Because it's usually read by men who say, this is what you should be. This virtuous, perfect woman. I've heard many women say to me on Mother's Day, you're not preaching on Proverbs 31, are you? If you are, I'm staying home because that just beats me up. But one of the neat things about that portion of Scripture is that it blows away some of these traditional roles that we sometimes force women to be into. So the Proverbs 31 woman runs the household, including servants, and has a business, a real estate business, and then also a business of selling product for profit. And uh, she is amazing in her ability to work in the business world. So the important point is to understand that there is equality of worth, but diversity of divine roles, and there is a slight difference here in the role. While husband and wife come together as one, there is a responsibility given to the man that is not given to the woman. I think it's also under, uh, uh, helpful to understand that this word submission is really to Christ. Did you notice that? And this is the key thing to see, I believe. Verse 21, submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence to Christ. Verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That does not mean my husband is king and tyrant and I submit to him as a servant. No, it means you submit to him because that's what the Lord has told you to do. This is the order that he has established. 
Not that one is more important than the other, but someone has got to lead and someone has got to take responsibility and he's put those burdens on the husband. That's what's being said. And your submission is not to a man, literally, it is to the Savior. If you jump down to chapter 6, it's the same motive for children who are to obey their parents in the Lord and masters who are to respect the slave or those who work for them and they are to obey just as they would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So understand that focus and that makes all the difference in the world. Who are you living for? You're living for Christ. What does he say about you? By the way, all of us ought to be in submission, first of all, to Christ, secondly, to one another, thirdly, to the authorities that be. And so there is structure throughout all of our lives, and so there is in the home itself. What this means is that this idea is actually based on creation. It is a creation command, first Corinthians chapter 11, and this simply says man was made first and the woman was made to complement, to bring what man lacked, not merely as support, but to come together equally. But the order was man, then woman. This is not chauvinism, this is creationism. It's not putting one down, it's simply acknowledging a fact. But secondly, this whole idea of submission, and maybe this is the most important thing, it is a picture of Christ and his church. So the first, we might say, one of the reasons is that it is drawn from the picture of creation, but secondly, it's drawn from the picture of redemption. And notice what it says down in verse 31. A man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So what you have here is that every marriage is designed to display the beautiful relationship that Christ has with his church. It is to be an object lesson for a world that doesn't understand. Imagine your marriage is showing people how Christ loves his church or it's giving them the wrong idea. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That when husband and wife living in reciprocal love, mutual submission, and yet reflecting still the structure or order that God has established in marriage, when they reflect this, they exhibit the gospel and the relationship between Christ and his church. It's all about the gospel. Marriage is all about the gospel. It's all about filling this earth with people who will be following King Jesus. It's about the gospel. Now, it really helps us to see quickly, and we almost have no time, so we're gonna have to pick this up some more tonight but we have to say something about the responsibility of the husbands to the wives the word headship that is mentioned here does not mean tyrant or one with ultimate authority or or complete authority 
No decisions really need to be made by husband and wife together. The word headship has the sense of order and origin and responsibility. Order so that there is a leadership component to it. Origin in the sense of man coming first and woman came from man but then it becomes reciprocal after that man comes from woman and that's what's described in 1 Corinthians 11 but the biggest thing is this idea of responsibility the ground of headship the idea lies in creation the definition of headship is seen in Jesus Christ and what is he called in verse 23 he is the what of the body the Savior. He's the Savior. It expresses care rather than control, responsibility rather than rule. The truth endorsed is this idea that the husband has the responsibility to lay down his life, to lay down his, to die for his wife as Christ the Savior died for the church. The characteristic of headship is not lordship. It is saviorhood. I don't think many men see that. Notice the word love. Here's the word given to man. Now, husbands, love your wives. And I love this. Thick-headed husbands need to have it repeated four times. Verse 25, verse 28, twice Verse 33, whenever you see something repeated in Scripture, it's not because God forgot. It's not because he's writing uh, an essay for a prof. And I used to do this, I confess. I was lacking content, but it had to be a 10-page paper. So I invented snow and fluff. I did what talk show radio hosts do today, say the same thing over three or four times in different ways to fill up the time, to fill up the pages. God doesn't do that. Oh, I've got to fill up this Bible, you know, with two testaments, and I'm running low on material, so I'll just repeat myself. No, he repeats himself because we are so quick to forget. Husbands, love your wife. Well, what does it mean? It's like Christ loved the church. Well, how did he do that? He gave himself up for the church. Love always acts with the other person's best interests in mind. Christ's love is the oversight, sacrificial love, never used selfishly, but gives himself up for the benefit of others. That's the first metaphor for love. And the second metaphor is that we are, men are to love their wives like they love themselves. That's actually mentioned twice, right? Verse 28, same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. By the way, if the two become one, then the more you love your wife, you're really loving yourself. But what he's talking about is verse 29. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. That's why in the great commandment, Jesus said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor like you love yourself. He didn't have to say, now work really hard at loving yourself. Most of us do a good job at that. 
We're concerned. We care for ourselves. Now take that same concern and care and project it to your wife. Partnership is a good word in the relationship of the marriage union, but it's a contribution where it comes from male and female who are not identical in God's creation. So man finds himself by being a man and woman finds herself by being totally a woman. And this is the way God designed it. And this is the plan that God has in mind. So let me quickly say a word to the wise. Remember that submission is the general duty of all believers. Secondly, remember that the one you are to be submitting to is not a tyrant but a lover. Like Christ is a lover. And thirdly, your submission to that person is really a submission to Christ. But what you've got to say in the final analysis is this. Although headship means leadership, in origin, there's some leadership, and responsibility is the big one. These words are really similar, aren't they? Think about it for a moment. What does it mean to submit? It means to give yourself to someone. What does it mean to love? It means to give yourself up for someone. And that sounds pretty similar to me. So the secret of marriage is really this. Husband and wife, drop dead to yourself and live for Christ. Dying to self and giving yourself to your spouse is the secret of a happy life. It's what Christ has called you to do. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's my Lord. Whatever you want, Lord. He says, okay, I want you to come into a marriage union in which you're going to find out how selfish you really are. (laughs) And this is how I plan to help you die to yourself. I'm going to let you get married. And you'll find out every day how much you love yourself more than others and how you need to learn to die to self if you really want to live for me, and then your marriage union is the beautiful picture of Christ and his church. Let's pray. Lord, while there is still great opportunity for us to misunderstand this portion of scripture and and depths we have not yet plummeted, Help us to grab the overall picture that what you want in marriage is people who have died to self and are totally surrendered to you and are so willing to love their spouse that they put their spouse ahead of themselves, that there is mutual submission in order that the glory of Christ would rest upon their home and that their kids would see a picture of Christ and his church in the home and want to follow it, where love prevails and Christ is supreme. Help us, Lord, in this life to so live dead to ourselves that your spirit controls us and the message of Christ flows through us. For the glory of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. It's a little bit late. I am going to dismiss you. Thank you for coming.